0: We're going to continue today in our series out of Luke's gospel. We call this we're calling a certain truth because of the way uh, Luke introduced this book that he wrote to his friend, Theophilus. He said, I want you to be certain of the truth that you were taught. And so he says, I've made a careful accounting, a careful record of all that's taken place. And so um, we're continuing in this series. It's pretty fun Um, just seeing how all this has come together and. Um, I just love the way God's Word continues to speak to us on a day-to-day basis. So, um, if we're going to be in Luke chapter 20 today, this is immediately following this event is immediately following that triumphal, what we call sometimes the triumphal entry into into Jerusalem. It's a you know it's a donkey riding, you know, palm branch waving um, festival procession into the city right before Jesus' arrest. And crucifixion, he really in that last week pushed all the hot buttons of the religious leaders that he could, and um, and they uh, they arrested them. So let's stand together to read Luke chapter twenty, um, starting at verse one. You're getting lots of uh, standing exercise today. It's great. Luke chapter twenty, starting at verse one. It says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law. And the elders came up to him and they demanded, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the right? Let me ask you a question first, he replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven or was it merely human? Well, they talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he'll ask, why didn't we believe John? But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they're convinced John was a prophet. So they finally replied, We don't know. And verse eight, Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, verse nine. Now, Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard. He leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up and sent him back empty handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up and sent him away empty handed. A third man was sent and they wounded him and chased him away. Verse 13, what will I do? The owner asked himself, Oh, I know I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. And what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. Verse 16, I'll tell you, he will come and he'll kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should ever happen, his listeners protested. And Jesus looked at them and he said, then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls upon. In verse 19, the teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. We thank the Lord for his word and let's be seated together. Holy Spirit, guide us into truth today, we ask. Well, throughout his three years of public ministry, teaching, healing, casting out demons, Jesus had to deal with these religious leaders over and over again. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of religious law, what we sometimes call scribes. They were hard-hearted men who refused to embrace this new thing that God was doing in their midst. So rather than listening to Jesus, rather than really exploring or trying to discern what is really going on, they were they were angered because the things he said and, and did attracted the crowds of people everywhere he went. And some of the things he taught were very different from how they'd come to understand Scripture, or what they assumed Scripture to mean. And so they hoped to trap Jesus. They, they, they wanted to build a case against him. Get him to say something terrible so they could arrest him and shut him up. We're not going to spend a lot of time kind of on this point. And if you're following in your, your outline today, we're coming to the first point here. But you just want to say that at times people may ask you questions about your faith, what you believe about Jesus, what the Bible says, not because they want an answer, because they're spoiling for an argument. We could say it this way. Not all questions deserve an answer. Not all questions deserve an answer. Jesus did have the authority. And otherwise, he, you know, he couldn't have gotten away with responding the way He did. He just really laid it out for them. Um, you know, a good teacher, is, as we know back then and today, teaches as much by asking questions as by giving answers. Maybe more. Maybe, maybe you learn more by the teacher asking good questions. But um, Jesus didn't fall for their trap of needing to answer all their questions. And I would just suggest this. If, you are, if you're being asked really difficult questions by someone in your life, parent, child, co-worker, neighbor, um, you know, you can turn it around and do what Jesus did and just ask questions in response to questions. It might be even as simple as well, do you really want an answer or you just kind of like the fun of having an argument? Um, very often there's a question behind the question. Very often it's, it's simple enough to say, you know, I don't, I don't really know how to answer your question, but here's what's, here's what's happened in my life. You can share a testimony. But um, Jesus knew that these guys were not sincerely seeking an answer. And so he quite, quite deftly um, rocked them back on their heels when he said, well, let's talk about John first. If I'm going to answer this, you got to answer this. And they couldn't. Now, at the the same time, I think it's a warning to you and, and to me, because sometimes we find ourselves asking questions of Jesus, even demanding answers about experiences instead of just getting to know him. Jesus, why is this happening in my life? God, why did my car have to break down on the way to work? It's not fair. Jesus, why am I I dealing with this illness? Why am I I having all these money troubles? And we're sort of demanding answers instead of stopping to say, Lord, what what am I to learn in this situation? What are you teaching me? What am I missing here, God, that you have for me? You know, Jesus said, you can read it in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and you're heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, Jesus says. Learn from me. How do you how do you learn? You learn by listening and applying what you're being told. Learn from me, Jesus says. For my yoke is easy, my burden's light. Let Jesus mentor you. Let him teach you. He's, he's not your errand boy. He's not your answer man. He's your Lord and King. So learn from him. Not all. Not all our answers, not all our questions deserve an answer. And so to expose the arrogance and the unbelief of these religious types, Jesus told the vineyard parable. And. um, I, you know, I've said this before and because it's pointed more to myself than anybody else, but we want to keep in mind that, you know, those of us who've spent our lives in church, who've grown up here, we we're always prone to fall into that trap of being religious instead of being followers of Jesus. It can happen without us even realizing. So we need to be aware that um, Jesus has strong words for those of us who, who pride ourselves in being religious. The meaning of the parable was obvious to them, to His listeners and to the crowd. God is the vineyard owner, the servant's you know, represent men sent as prophets. Jesus is the son. The, the Jewish leaders are the tenants of the vineyard. They, they they got all that. They understood. Whoa, whoa, he's telling us about us. And, and the, the, you know, the crucial mistake, I think, that in getting into the story, the crucial mistake that the tenants of that vineyard made is that they forgot something. They forgot. These men that had rented the vineyard, they're creating, you know, staying busy and making money off it and so on. They forgot the vineyard was still the farmer's vineyard, the owner's vineyard. It wasn't their vineyard. This parable actually refers back to Isaiah chapter 5. There's a long sort of poem in Isaiah chapter 5 about Israel as God's vineyard. And he kind of talks about how he, how he took a plot of ground from nothing and created a beautiful vineyard. And, and Israel is that, that, that place. And the religious leaders had been entrusted with the responsibility, but not the ownership of that vineyard. You understand the difference, right? The, the responsibility, but not ownership. Uh, if you go into a restaurant, you might meet you might meet the general manager of the restaurant. But that manager doesn't necessarily own that place, but they're responsible for everything that happens in that place. So um, they have been entrusted with responsibility, but not the ownership of that vineyard. And the, as this parable reveals they acted as though the nation, right, and the temple and the religious laws, they acted as though that was theirs. These are ours. These are our laws. This is our temple. This is our nation. And, and everybody needs to do what we say because it's ours. A lot of kind of possessiveness about that. And I think I just throw this out there. This is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm really thankful that... Um, you know, our church sign out there on Maple Avenue. Um, my name's not on the sign. Now, sometimes I drive around town and I see a church. This is, you know, pastored by the Reverend Dr. So-and-so. I'm like, oh. And then there's some churches you pass by and it's like that. And you can see they hastily paint it over and then they put another one. And then they <laughs> got the sign guy to make a new one that goes over top of that. And, um, you know this is this is not about any one person this is not about any one leader this is not you know i believe god's called me and our family here to you know tend to this vineyard that we call bethany church and to give leadership here but i don't i don't own this this is not my vineyard we're meant to bear fruit you're meant to bear fruit not for my benefit not for the pastor's benefit but for jesus we're not here even just to look nice, to look pretty and be beautiful. God's planted this church here, this vineyard and this place to be a life giving vineyard for the people around us. This neighborhood, this community, your friends, your co-workers, your family members. You, you might even drill down into your own life, your resources, your responsibilities, your relationships. Right. These are the things that are the vineyard of your life. Your resources, the things you do, where you spend your time and your money, the people you interact with. That's the vineyard of your life. And I ask you this, who owns your vineyard? Who owns your vineyard? Right? Verse 9 and down tells the story of, of all this, you know, they're, they're farming this vineyard and they're chasing away these, these uh, servants that come to collect. And uh, they've got this idea that I think we could take this over. Right? These tenants rejected the authority of the owner and tried to take possession of the vineyard. Now, how often in life do you and I forget that God is the authority? God's the boss. He's the owner. How often do we forget that it's God's generosity that grants us salvation in life? The tenant farmers could easily have continued to make a good living if they'd just done what the what the owner had asked. But that wasn't enough for them. They wanted to be their own Lord, their own boss, looking out for number one. I want to be in charge of my own life. Nobody can tell me what to do. And I have to remind myself that all I have is the Lord's my my vineyard, right? includes resources, relationships and responsibilities. But also my time, my work, my you know, my, my very body belongs to him. I'm not the ultimate owner of this vineyard that I call my life. And I answer to the one and will answer to the one who has made me a steward and the same is true for you. You will answer to the one who has made you a steward of the vineyard. Your sphere of influence, your everything that kind of you touch in your life is, in a sense, the vineyard that God's entrusted you with. I would just ask, do you recognize that it's God who owns your vineyard? Not, not Not just one day a week. Not just a Sunday kind of life with God and the rest is mine. God, I give you Sunday morning. The rest is mine. But a whole life to say, God, I'm... I'm serving you. There's a crazy twist to the story. You see it in verses 14 to 16, right? The tenant farmers see the son. They're like, hey, let's kill the son. And then we get to inherit the estate. Um, how these shady characters thought they could simply kill the owner's son and take over the farm is, um, is a puzzle. a puzzle. Even Jesus' listeners are appalled at these events, right? See in verse sixteen, how terrible that such a thing should ever happen. They protest it. they they've, they've, they. Verse fifteen, you know, they they drag him out of the vineyard and murder him. It's all foreshadowing of Jesus being dr- dragged out of Jerusalem and, and crucified. The Jerusalem representing the kind of the heart of the vineyard of the Jewish people. You wonder how this happens. If you look back in 1 Kings 21, there's an amazing story about um, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And Ahab says, boy, I really, I really like this particular plot of land. I want it for a garden. But it's owned by a guy named Naboth. And the, and the queen says, well, I'll just take it. He goes, no, I, I can't do that. So she sets up this whole ruse and basically gets him murdered. And then she says to her husband, hey, you know that plot of land you really like for a vegetable garden? I got it for it, it's yours, no problem. And so that's kind of the one account we have in the, of the Old Testament of this kind of thing happening. Where, oh, I want what you have. I'll just kill you and take it. And and thankfully we have laws that prevent that from happening. It it's an absurd kind of notion, but Jesus is laying out just the absurdity of what happens when we reject Him. Right? It's outrageous. It, it reminds me of that, um, of the phrase that's coined by. Anybody know, do you guys know who Adam Savage is from the Mythbusters, right? He's got that great line. He says, I reject your reality and substitute my own. you ever familiar with that, right? My guys know that. Um, that doesn't work. Uh, here's the point. Denying the truth will not change the truth. Denying the truth will not change the truth. Roy, you're wearing a red T-shirt today. If if uh, If I say, that's not red, it's blue. It's Kentucky red, isn't it? Right. And if I say no, it's blue. Louisville, whatever. It's all over there somewhere. Louisville. <laughs> Point is, it's red. It, if I say it's blue, it's still red. You can't deny the truth. And somehow make it change. If I say, I can do what I want. I'm my own boss. I don't need to answer to God. I may actually believe that. I might even say, well, there is no God. But that does not make it so. That the tenants in that vineyard learned the hard and painful way that the owner is still the owner. Whether they acknowledge him or not. There was that popular worship song about 20 years ago. I don't know if you sang it here at Bethany. Um, I think we pretty much sang it to death every other church where I was at. Come now is the time to worship. Anybody remember that song? Right? It did have this really great line in there that says, One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still, the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose Him now. You know, that the, the time is coming when every person will admit that Jesus is Lord. That, that, that God is the ultimate authority. When they will confess that Jesus is the King of Kings. And that, that little song was saying that you know, it's better to admit that now while you can to choose to admit that until you choose to yield to the authority and leadership of Christ in your life rather than to do so in the face of judgment. When even unbelievers will have to acknowledge, yes, Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And I, w- I would ask this, I mean, are you yielding to the truth of God's authority? In your life. Or. Have you, for example, bought into the lie of culture that says, well, God didn't really create the heavens and the earth. He just kind of created itself and God watched. That's actually a lie, right? Or are you falling for the lie that says, well, God didn't really create us to be male and female, husband and wife. He just, he just wants us to be happy together. That's a lie. Or are you accepting the lie that the Bible isn't really that important? We just interpret it the way that it suits us for this time and place in our culture. That's a lie. Those are ways in which the world and many in the church today, including, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. Presbyterian Church just this last week. They're rejecting the owner of the vineyard. And guess what? The owner still owns the vineyard. Denying the truth does not change the truth. Then finally, Jesus finished his story with a quote from Scripture. You'll see it in Psalm 118. I've got it up here on screen. Verse 17 of of Psalm 118, where Jesus says, um, uh, just jump to that next one there. The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone and then when people, you know, they're welcoming in Jerusalem, like I said before, they're shouting Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting from that song. They, they had that sense that this is this is the Messiah. There's something different about Jesus. And Jesus now points to himself as a cornerstone. I don't know if you know what a cornerstone is. Yeah, let's go ahead and put that picture up today. A cornerstone is typically has become sort of a symbolic sort of stone in a building. It's kind of a, a commemorative. Item, But um, in earlier times, the cornerstone was large and heavy and perfectly square and had to be set absolutely level. Um, it, it, it didn't have to be beautiful, but it had to be perfect. And it, it, it not only perfect, but perfectly placed. And the Jewish leaders, you know, said. Jesus doesn't fit our idea of a of a cornerstone. You know that cornerstone has to be set correctly because from there everything is drawn off and leveled so the whole building sits right. When I was a a teenager, the little church we were part of did a a big addition and all built by volunteers, bless their hearts. But it was just really cute. You could look down the side of the building, and as you look down the building, this one wall goes straight, and then all like that. Someone just just put the footings on the wrong side of the line. And, and that's and that's how that happened. And forever after they had a building that was just a unique shape, you know, a little architectural detail. It may sure made it hard to stand trusses. I'll tell you that. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we we have this sense that uh, the, the cornerstone is needed to build everything else. And they said, no, no, Jesus doesn't fit. That's not what we're looking for. But they did not look at the perfection of Jesus, the Son of God, and so they rejected Him. Jesus carried on verse 18 in our passage here. He says, Everyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken to pieces and will crush anyone on whom it falls. Everything in your faith starts with an accurate understanding and faith in Jesus. If we miss this, we'll be crushed in judgment or broken to pieces being offended by Jesus. The right view of Jesus Jesus is the litmus test, even now, for every faith system. If you get Jesus right, you will eventually, at least, get everything else right. If not, you're going to miss the truth. I, 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 you know, we've got lots of your friends here in the city. They're perhaps Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, and so on. They're so close. Maybe if you were even raised in that, you're close. But you haven't got Jesus right. Get Jesus right, and the rest will make sense that's why those groups are still lost and still need to find the truth. And when we reject the cornerstone, we we go back to denying the truth, right? And then we assume control of our vineyard. And when we build a life without the cornerstone, we have that flawed structure like that church that I grew up in. I've got to ask, is Jesus your cornerstone? Is Jesus your cornerstone? Is he your firm foundation? I know it's a shift in metaphors here from we were talking about vineyard and all of a sudden Jesus has switched us over to talking about a cornerstone. He, he goes from from a field to a building. But it's, it's OK, he can do that. It's Jesus. Right. If you can say, yes, my vineyard is God's vineyard. I think then it's fair to ask, are you building your life on Jesus, the cornerstone? Do your decisions and your relationships and your spending habits and your conversations and your recreation, do those things rest on the cornerstone of Jesus? Are they firm and, and and secure in him? I've got time to finish with a little illustration. Anybody here ever play the game Jenga? Any Jenga anybody ever play Jenga? A few of you? We do occasionally. At least we have the game in our house. I don't think we play it that often. But... So Jenga is sort of kind of reverse maybe of what we're talking about here. But um, what do you need more than anything to play Jenga? What, what, what do you need to have a successful Jenga game besides people to play with you? A table, right? It's got to be secure, stable, level. I know with Jenga, if you haven't played Jenga, the point of Jenga is to unbuild the building. You get to take little blocks out of the little stack of blocks as you play. So just imagine this a little bit in reverse. But for the game of Jenga to work, and you know, maybe it is a good picture of life because life has these moments where, you know, it, it hits you and chunks disappear because of financial crisis or illness or loss or grief or, you know, unmet Unmet, oh, and then you're supposed to put them on top, right? Unmet dreams and realizations and, and expectations and your hopes and plans. And you know what, as long as, what happens when you're playing Jenga? Someone's always like, don't shake the table! No hands on the table! You know? And someone kind of reaches, no, no, don't, don't, don't touch the table. That's always what kids are saying, don't touch the table! You guys can't see very well over here. So as long as you're base, your foundation for Jenga is stable, you're fine. More or less. I mean, that reaches a point where it all comes to an end, but that's life too. So, um... (laughs) Did I just push that metaphor a little too far? Oh, man. Oh, man. But here's the thing about Jenga. If your table is not stable, if it's tilted, if it's if it's askew in any way, right? If there's something in your life, if you do not have a firm and secure foundation, what's going to happen? Okay, well, now we're in Italy. Okay? Right? But if you do not have a sure foundation... See? These guys know how it works. My question to you is, what are you building your life on? Is it stable? Are you counting on a relationship? You know, my, 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 my spouse is my world. Well, you know what? That could change. Oh, my job. My job is so secure. That's my world. Industries change. People get laid off. Economies fall. Well, my, my abilities. I'm a really good fill in the blank. You know what? Skills come and go. Well, I'm, I've done very well for myself and my money is fine. I'm, I've got good investments. 2008 happened. Remember that? So, the question isn't, um, you know, whether or not what you have is good enough. The question is, do you have Jesus as your foundation? And we'll build everything else on Him. Jesus said, Jesus said that the the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know, they looked at Jesus and said, this cannot possibly be the way the way the Messiah should come. So they rejected him. Later on, the Apostle Paul says that the message of the Gospels is foolishness. Doesn't make sense, but it's the firm foundation. My challenge is, is Jesus your foundation today? Let's pause to pray. Lord God, I thank you for the incredible, amazing events of your ministry and your life. Lives that were changed. Jesus, today, 2,000 years later, we're affected by your ministry every single day. With every turn of the calendar page, we're we're reminded of You. And Lord, we're in a time in our culture when You as, as a foundation is, has been so challenged. But we don't want to point the finger elsewhere without looking at ourselves. Jesus, are we, are we making You our cornerstone? Are we making You the, the, the foundation point of our lives? Are we acknowledging that, that You're the owner of our vineyard? and we're here to serve You and to to give our lives as tribute to You. God, I ask that You would challenge us in that. That You would stir us in that. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I want to give you that opportunity. Maybe you're at a place in your life today where you're saying, Jesus is not my cornerstone. I've been doing this my own way and I recognize that a day is going to come where I'm going to meet Jesus face to face. God may have, have already blessed you with an amazing life. So many good things. So many blessings. And He's just waiting for you and inviting you to acknowledge that, that He's the owner of your vineyard. He is the authority. You know, and as you live your life under His authority, He just continues to add blessing and meaning and purpose to your life. So if you're a person here today and you're saying, I don't, I don't know Jesus, but I'd like to. I'd like to give my life to Him. I'd like to make Jesus my cornerstone today. If that's you, I'm just going to invite you just to raise your hand and look at me and I'll get a chance to pray with you after the service. Anybody like that today? I want to make Jesus my cornerstone. I think for the rest of us, including myself, this is a daily challenge. Jesus, are you my cornerstone? Jesus, am I living like you're the owner of my vineyard? God, we thank you for teaching us today, for giving us Your Word, guiding us into truth. We trust You to lead us each day. Let us live as You've called us to live. Be glorified in our lives, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.